All right. So, Romans chapter 2. And uh, I want to I start off with kind of a, 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 an analogy. Right? Kind of set the stage for our study in general. So, what I need you to do is imagine with me, if you will, that, uh, that we are determined to go study the ocean. Okay? And we're going to go, and we're going to go study the Pacific Ocean. And um, our, our, the vessel that we're going to use is a canoe. Okay? We'll paddle out the ocean, and we're going to paddle out to the Mariana Trench. Does anybody know what the significance of the Mariana Trench is? Deepest point, as far as we know, on the planet. It's about seven miles deep. So we, we position ourselves over the Mariana Trench, study the ocean, and we pull out our instrument that we're going to use to study the ocean, which is a clear Dixie solo cup. Okay? But we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna, as the British would say, we're gonna give it a good go. So we dip our cup in the ocean. We look and we're looking at it and we're trying to look at all the plankton and everything in there. And as we're focused on that cup, just over the bow of our canoe, a whale breaks and breaches. Suddenly, you just you're just dumbfounded. You're just like, "What are we gonna do with that?" It's just it's it's just too big for our framework. That's what we're doing with the Book of Romans right now. Do you understand? We're we're, we're paddling out in our little canoe. We, we got our little section tonight. We're gonna we're gonna look at and I'm gonna, we're gonna take our little cup and we're gonna dip it in there and there's more left behind and we pull out and there's stuff that breaches in front of us that we're going, whoa, what was that? Just hold on. We're going to, this is our focus. All right. So that's, that is my statement of humility. I, I'm just paddling in a canoe. That's all I'm doing. All right. So that's what we're doing in Romans. Just trying to get a, an overall perspective on what's in this book. All right, so uh, the book of Romans. And the key word that we have, we're studying, centering our study on is it's the gospel. And interestingly, if you trace that out in the first and second chapter, Paul will say the gospel of God concerning his son, which is my gospel. So his story story of Jesus, who is the Son of God who came to uh, manifest the righteousness of God in the forgiving of sinners. Uh, the, the book is really an argument on two fronts. It is about the righteousness of God, which has been in question. Why has the righteousness of God been, been questioned throughout the ages? What's one of the reasons? Right. Your eyes, remember Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Why do you look with favor on the, on the wicked? God, you must not be that good if you're letting all that get away. 
Right, so, and the Romans is telling us God is righteous in the judgment of sinners. But then it's also telling us what? That God is righteous in the salvation of sinners. Alright, so that's kind of the what, what what's unfolding in the book. Alright, <clears throat> so now we talked about that the really the way that this is structured out. We can, and there's other ways to break up the book of Romans, but this is the one we're working with. Okay? We broke it up into a threefold pattern. First is condemnation. Second, and okay. Uh, this is chapters chapters one through about midway of three. This is midway of three, all the way up through eight. Okay. Uh, no, I'm sorry. You're right. Okay. Uh, midway of three, all the way up to six. And this is six, going through the rest of the book. Okay. Now, and then we saw, we've seen already that this condemnation, that there are, we can break the condemnation up into three components. The first group, chapter one, that gets condemned are pagans. pagans. Now, you can call them heathen. You can call them pagans. You can call them. But these are people who basically have no moral restraint. Okay? Then the second group, we talked about last week, we call those the, the moral people. Now, you can in reading this see that he, the shift is moving toward the Jews. And some would say, well, this is really just the Jewish, but I've taken some liberties here to, to talk about the moral people. And what gives us a clue to this about moral people is in the beginning of the book, he, in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, You, O man, who are you, O man, to judge another? So you see that moral position that's being asserted. Yes, God is right to condemn those people. We agree with you. The only problem is we've got to deal with your sin. Alright? So that's the, the, the moral people. And then tonight, it is... It's about the Jews, okay? But I don't want to lose this in antiquity, okay? And I don't want to say, oh yeah, this is all about the Jews. It is, it is addressed to the Jewish people. The, 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 the argument is about the Jews' position. But I want to substitute and say these are religious people. And that will help us kind of make some, see some analogical parallels between them and us. Okay? Now, <clears throat> we saw the passive wrath of God here. Alright, that's what we centered on here when we, we looked at this. The wrath of God is upon the pagans because of the passive wrath. The problem in evangelizing the pagans is what? They enjoy their sin. Right? Right? Then you got the moral, the moralist and the problem. We, we concentrated specifically on evangelizing them because more than likely, unless you're going to go over, well, I'll see, just about said something that really shouldn't have been said. Unless you're going to go to certain parts of Louisville or Taylorsville, believe me, there's these parts of Taylorsville as well, okay? 
you're probably not going to encounter this a whole lot. This is this is this is probably who you're going to encounter. These people are living next to you. These are people you're working with. Okay. Um, these, the problem with them is is they don't recognize their sin because they have somewhat a sense of moral standing. I, well, and, and if you press on them, they're going to say, well, I mean, I know I don't do everything perfect, but I'm not like that guy. Now, the, the religious guy is, and I, and I thought about this today, I, and, and here's the analogy for whether it's good or bad, I don't know, but this one I'm going to throw out for you. <clears throat> this guy is like a guy standing out in the field in just his clothes in terms of evangelism, and I'm thinking entirely evangelism here. This guy is like a guy who's standing out in the field. He's got his clothes and he's got, I mean, I'm thinking about medieval knights, and he's got a coat of mail on. Right? That's his, that's his protection. It's his morality. This guy, the one we're going to deal with tonight, is like the fully suited knight. He's got his undergarments on. He's got a coat of mail and he's got a full suit of armor. He's almost impenetrable. Okay? Not completely. But just getting to this guy is tough. But now, guess what? The one tool that we use to get at all three of these. The gospel. Period. That's what it is. The remedy in all three cases is the gospel because according to Paul in 116, what is the gospel? The power of God and the salvation. Okay? Alright, so that's that's where we are in our text thus far in our study. Alright, so chapter 2, verse 17, he says, but if you bear the name Jew. Okay? Now, what follows in the text are ten characteristics. Okay? There's ten Characteristics of what that meant. So you see them? Right? It meant to bear the name Jew meant what? Number one. It's in the text. It's right there. It's in the text. It's, it's, it's in between. It's in between the commas. Okay? There you go. Alright. You, you, first of all, you are relying upon the law. Okay? It's the first characteristic. Now, if, to transfer this over to kind of a religious person, what we'd say, you're relying on what? The Bible. The possession of the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. And what Paul is going to say to these people is the possession of the law doesn't make you a Jew. So that's a kind of analogy that I'm trying to kind of work out and work through here. So, number two, what is it, the second characteristic? You boast in God. In fact, that is how they delineated themselves from the rest of the world. 
from a Jewish perspective, there were really only two types of people on the planet. What were they? Jews and Gentiles. And what was the moniker for being a Gentile? Huh? Lost without God. That was really, and you can get this in Ephesians chapter 2. You see this? Okay? All right? So, from a religious perspective, then we say, hey, God is on our side. We've got the Bible, and the possession of the Bible that makes us say, what? God is on our side. Third thing. Third characteristic. In between the commas. Noah's will. Now, how did they know his will? Because they had what? The law, the Bible. They said, this is, this is the law, this is what God says. But what we're going to find out is, again, the possession, the knowledge of God's will is not, is not the end of the, the game. What's the end of the game? Remember what Jesus said? Why do you call me Lord and do not do it? It's about doing the law, and this is going to be the argument in Romans. The only way you can be justified, the only way you will be justified by the law is what? Keep keep how much of it? All of it. All right? Number four. In between the commas. It's right after. And know his will. And approve what it is. Excellent, or NES is approved the things that are essential, and and what that what that really means is it's an, the idea of the ability to prioritize. It's, it's a function of wisdom, it's the ability to to know to distinguish between greater and lesser, more important, less important. All right, um, we'll just rapidly go through the rest of these things. Being instructed out of the law, confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Okay? They say, you don't know what you're doing, do you? In fact, what they say is evidence that you don't know what you're doing is all the mayhem that's going on in your life. So I'll tell you what, if you will follow me, if you will do what I tell you to do. You'll have your best life now. That was intentional, by the way. A light to those who are in darkness. A corrector of the foolish. A teacher of the immature. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Those are some pretty strong characteristics. And this is what, what Paul says the Jew is relying upon. What's he leaning upon? He's not leaning upon God. He's leaning upon his religion. But following these ten characteristics of what it made to be a Jew, there are five condemnations. Because there's five things that they are failing to acknowledge. These things show up in terms of rhetorical questions. 
And when you ask a rhetorical question, what is the assumption? You know the answer, and the answer is correct. Okay? And that's, so here are the five condemnations. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? So you're running around here teaching people about the way to live life based on your knowledge of the Word of God. How's it going for you? How's your life going? And the assumption is it's not going so well. You who preach that you should not steal, do you steal? Now again, this is a rhetorical question. What are we anticipating the answer to be? Yes, you do. This is, this is just flat up. I mean, this is, you are fully engaged now because Paul is saying to these people, these, this hypothetical opponent that is opposing what he is saying, he's looking them dead in the eye and saying, you know what? You claim to be a religious person of the highest order on the planet and you're a thief. And there's Old Testament and New Testament stories to back up what Paul is saying here. If they question it, he would he could just quickly go to passages of Scripture and show how his people, he is a Jew, his people were guilty of the things that he is saying forward. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? We saw this last Now, how does Jesus help us out on validating that one? So I, I've been faithful to my wife. And what would Jesus come back and say? Have you looked on another woman? Lust in your heart. You've done what? You've sinned. You're guilty. You're running around here condemning all of these people for being irreligious. And you are guilty. You abhor idols, and yet you rob temples. You boast in the law, but through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And the answer is, what he is saying is, this religious life, this, again, and this is, I mean, again, this Jewish life that you have carved out as a as a example for the rest of the world to follow, this religious life that you are putting on display in the world in which you exist is not having the effect that you think it is. In fact, he notice what he says, the effect of that life. The effect of a religious life when your righteousness is derived from your religion ends up what? Dishonoring God. That's what this text says. Through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And the assumption is the answer is yes. And then he quotes the old, some of the Old Testament. Notice verse 24. For the name of God 
is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, let me pause right here. Let me just say this. You remember, what is the trajectory of this whole section, this whole argument that Paul is setting forward? How many people make it out of the minds of the Moria? None. Because, you know, when you get to 319, he's going to say what? The whole world will have to shut its mouth and be accountable to God. You get to 323, and he's going to say what? Listen, this is where we have to do some soul searching right here, okay? We really do. I'm, here, here's my assumption. I am making an assumption that everybody in here is born again. Okay? Right? That is an assumption. Which means that at some point in your life, you have found yourself representative of one of these three groups of people that we have discussed. You're either that, that pagan, you were saved out of your paganism, or you were saved out of your morality, or you were saved out of your religion. And here's a soul searching. And don't, no hands, no not time for testimony. A test lying meeting, okay? Which one was I saved out of? And if you have a hard time answering that, there's a problem. And, and the problem is, is, that, is that if you find yourself in that last camp, well, I've been religious all my life. That's a, that's a tough place to be. The point is, is that somehow through, thus far through our consideration of this text, you should should somehow in your own mind say, you know what? Wow, that was me, and I was under the condemnation of God, but Jesus has saved me, and for this I rejoice. Okay? All right? All right, so that's... Now, I want to take some time and look at this verse 24 and dig a little deeper. Okay. So, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because you are unregenerate in your religion. That's what this is. Okay. Now, first of all, the, what I believe the problem here is, really what he's accusing them of, is breaking the fourth commandment. Okay, Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished if he takes his name in vain. The breaking of the fourth commandment, taking the name of the Lord in vain, is not really about cursing. Okay? It's really not. In the Old Testament, and we'll look at some New Testament perspectives, taking the name of the Lord in vain is saying, we are God's people. 
we are Jews. And yet living like everybody around you. And when that happens, people look at those. And this happened in Israel. We're going to look at an example here. The people around the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, they looked at him and said, Well, Yahweh is not that great of a God. He's not that righteous. Because if he's letting you get away with that, then he's, he's, he's not, no different than the pagan gods. So taking of the name of God in vain is... So, j- listen. Just because we are able to constrain our lips from uttering the universally recognized profanity of that, that is what we call taking God's name in vain. Just because you can restrain your lips from uttering a phrase does not mean that we are not breaking the fourth commandment. So let's look at an example of how somebody broke the fourth commandment. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. This is David. King of Israel. He is supposed to be the exemplar of Israel's wisdom, Israel's religion, Israel's morality. He is is the, the, the exemplar for everybody to look to. And we all know the story, don't we? In fact, part of the story is in the text I'm pointing you to. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, now when when David said that, what David was saying, I am guilty of adultery and I am guilty of murder. Things that I have done. But look at what Nathan says. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. Okay? However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. It was the way that David was living his life. And that others were seeing that. And then we're calling into question the very character of God because of the association between God and His people. That's serious. It's break, that's, that is breaking the fourth commandment. They're all interwoven together. That's, a, that's an individual example. There's a, there's a corporate example as well as a community because... The exemplar fails, so then it falls out from the community. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake that 
O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name. Israel had lived a life that was inconsistent with what she'd been called to do. God says, I'm about to act, and here's why. For his name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. So there it is. The, the, the great damage is not always done by these pagans running around without any morality. It, it comes from religious people who are supposed to be representing God in His holiness. Examples of the wisdom of life that is lived out in accordance with, with His law. That brings blessing and not cursing. So people are mocking. They're mocking the, the Jewish religion. They're mocking the Jewish God. And this is, this is a serious, serious indictment that is being made by Paul here. He has rolled out the, the, the heavy guns for this last group. He's taking no prisoners. Okay. Now, back to our text in Romans. I knew it was going to get quiet about this point. <laughs> so there's, there's kind of a response that's anticipated. In verse 25, so after... after Paul says in verse 24, he says, look, God's being blasphemed because of the way you're living your life. It comes up with the issue of circumcision, which is just another religious practice. And it's another way to say, but, but we are Jews. We are religious. And he says, he says, listen, but if you're a transgressor of the law, which they were, then all your, when he, notice that he says, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. What he's saying is all your religion is worthless. All your church attendance, all of your giving, all of your, it's worthless in terms of the righteousness of God that is required. That's, and that is tough to handle. And it really is. Because we put a lot of effort into our religion. And Paul says, but, but you're invalidating it. He has an inverse argument in verse 26 and 27. He says, look, he says, look. He said, if the irreligious man keeps the practice, if, if he does what is right, this is hypothetical, then the irreligious man actually ends up righteous because he's kept the law. Here's the real issue, and this is where we're, we're, we're going to park for the rest of the, the evening. He said, look, look, notice verse 28. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That's these ten characteristics. Okay? 
all this outward. He said, he said, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But now notice verse 29. Here's the core. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. It really doesn't, it really doesn't matter what men say about you. At the end of the day, now, it's, it's about God and his judgment. And when I say his judgment, I don't mean his condemnation. How he assesses you, where he acquits you or not. So it gets down to the, to the heart of the matter. What is, how's your heart? Has your heart, to use the language of Romans, has your heart been circumcised? That's, that's what has to happen. And this is something that is true. This is something that is that has been true not just in the New Testament, but it's been true always. This goes all the way back to the law itself. One of the, the passages that, that I try to grip and hold on to is Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because in it, because in it is both condemnation and grace and hope. It starts out this way. What's happened is there's been a recitation of the law. And then here's what God says. God says, and this is, this is the condemnation part. This is the hard part. God says... Here's what I know about you, Israel. I've given you the law and you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. In fact, I'm going to send you to exile. He says, but then, and here comes the grace. He says, Deuteronomy 36, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you might live. And my prayer cries out, Dear God, circumcise my heart. Because until you do, I'm going to fail at law keeping. I'm going to get tired of it. I'm not going to understand it. I'm going, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to become exasperated. Lord, I need you to do something to me. I need you as Israel needed you. I need you to circumcise, to cut away my heart. And in, in another Old Testament passage, it's going to talk about that he will take out this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's what we've got to have. We don't have to have religion. What we have to have is a new heart. Not one that we make up ourselves, but something that God does to us. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you might live. So when Paul says in Romans 2.29 that the one who is a Jew is one who is inwardly and the circumcision of it is of his heart. That's the te- type of texts that he is thinking of. 
And interestingly, in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, the one where we read about where Israel had profaned the name of God, if you read this a little bit further, listen to the language. This is so encouraging. For I will take you from the nations. Now, why are they in the nations? That light really annoyed me. Turn it off. Why, why was Israel in the nations? Why? Remember the text we read? Because they had what? They had profaned the name of God Himself. This same group of people, here's what He says. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then I'll use this text, verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There's a transformation that takes place when, when God comes in and transforms your heart, then there is true religion. Not because you're trying to keep codes and commandments to be pleasing to God, but because you've been fundamentally changed by the power of God resulting in new affections. Your religion comes out of your heart. Not as an external show trying to earn the praise of men or to quiet your conscience, but because God has done something in you. Now, the gospel is what does this. Okay? So, what has to happen, and this is hard for religious people, is there has to be some desperation. We, we really have to, to realize how desperate we are and call out to God and say, God, will you please change my heart? The gospel is the mechanism by which that takes place. And when that takes place, there's a change that happens. Okay? Um... You don't turn there, just Colossians 2, 9 through 12. There's this text that, that has this New Testament circumcision language where it says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So that is the encounter of the gospel. Your heart is circumcised, the spirit is put within you. Now your obedience is natural. Which results in lives that are designed to be lived to the honor of God. Okay? Alright? Hopefully by this point you, you really do see that the way you live your life really does matter. It really does. It really does matter to God. Because God's doing something with your life. Individually and collectively. And evidence of that comes out in the way some of the New Testament language 
um, talks about us. And I'm just going to run through a, a couple of these passages. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works. That's my finisher. What brings glory to God? Okay, I'm going to say it again. What brings glory to God? Men seeing your good works. As opposed to what? Blaspheming his name. Okay? Alright? How about... Philippians 2.14, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to hit everybody here tonight, okay? Show everybody the remarkable impact of a converted life, of being a true Jew. Philippians 2.14-15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. It comes down to something as simple as grumbling and complaining. He he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because you're a light. And people are looking at you. And if you grumble and you complain, then what are you doing? You're shutting the light out. First Timothy 6 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now here's the purpose clause. So that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. To So a slave, Paul envisions that a slave can live his life in one of two ways. He can live his life in such a way as to bring dishonor to God or to bring honor to God. I don't think there's any slaves in here. okay? But, But there are some wives in here. Okay? Listen to this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. And I think it's very instructive right there, ladies. Right? That you're having to be taught how to do this. Right? Sometimes it's not so easy. That Sometimes it doesn't come natural. That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Help me out. Help me out. Okay? That they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Now here's the purpose clause. That the word of God may not be dishonored. So there's a way to live in your home that you bring God honor. And there's a way to live in your home where God is poorly of. So, I think you can see that that the way we live our lives 
really does have an impact on the name of God. And that living a life of just outward religion, as the Jew did, brings blasphemy to him and condemnation to us. But through a converted heart, the con- not only does the condemnation go away because of what Christ did in the gospel, but we have the opportunity to true, genuinely and truly bring honor to God so that people look at us and say, you know what? These are different people. I looked up real quick, and then we've got to we've got to finish up here. Um, I looked up because I was thinking about this excuse that is used. The essence of this, really, the essence of you know, the essence of all this is, is really hypocrisy, right? And that's what that is what brings dishonor to God when we claim to to be His children and then we act like the children of the devil. Okay, that that really doesn't go well. And, uh, and, and this, is, this is stinging. It really is. It's, it's, uh, it's invalid, but this is just the way it goes. This, this is, uh, this is probably part of it. Is, it's, this is just hard. Um, this is from a, from a website, and I was just kind of doing a search on hypocrisy and looking at, at stuff and the result, how people view even Christians that are inconsistent in their life. Now, their inconsistency may be because they're not Christians, they're unregenerate. And they're living like the Jew. Or it may be an invalid argument. This is from evilbible.com. That pretty much... uh, It tells right now this is not going to go well. Okay. In a quote, Christians, they love to talk about how loving and dutifully compassionate they are. Yet, uh, I have yet to meet one who does not practice hypocrisy to the highest degree. Their willful ignorance of the Bible combined with their two-faced idealism to preach it has made us sick, hasn't it? For nearly 2,000 years, biblicists have been lecturing people on the importance of adhering to the Bible's teachings on ethics, manners, and morality. They quote Jesus and Paul profusely with a liberal sprinkling of Old Testament moralism. The problem with their approach lies not only in an oft-noted failure to practice what they preach, but an equally pronounced tendency to ignore what the Bible itself preaches. Christians practice what can only be described as selective morality. What they like, they cling to and shove down others' throats. What they don't like, they ignore vehemently. That which is palatable and acceptable is supposedly acceptable to all, while that, is, that which is obnoxious, inconvenient, or self-denying is only applicable to those addressed 2,000 years ago. Their hypocrisy is so rampant that even the validity of calling oneself Christian is in question. I see so many people enjoy quoting the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, and some of Paul's sermons, 
but don't even pretend to heed other equally, equally valid maxims. I've mentioned pro-life and conservatism in other sermons. This, is one, this, this one is going to sum up the rest of my beefs. But anyway. The point I'm, I'm wanting to, to make with reading that is that what we find in Romans chapter 2 that is addressed to the Jew is not only true for the Jew of the first century, but there are those that look out there who see themselves, see people who call themselves Christian and who are no different than the Jew of the first century. Now what I've also tried to do is to present the gospel in this, that even for those hard-hearted religious people who base their hope on their external performance to some code, there's hope. Jesus does circumcise hearts. And that's what we will begin to see next week as we get into the gospel. We've got one more little dark section, little dark path to get through. I'll try to make it quick and painless. And then we'll see the bright hope of the gospel in Romans 3, 23 and 4 and 5 begin to shine brightly across the dark landscape. There is hope because there is Jesus. All right? All right. So 